The Golf.com podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter promo code GOLFING at FanDuel.com for a bonus match of up to $200. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app and enter our code GOLFING for $20 off your first purchase. You know, obviously, he tried to get me fired at the Golf Channel. He and his manager both tried to get me fired uh, after the column I wrote for Golf.com uh, at BMW. So, you know, I, I'm sure he's he's not particularly fond of me. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to let his poor opinion of me uh, uh, change the way I feel about him, which is he's a gift to golf uh, and probably the most impactful Um player in the history of this game. Hello, and welcome back to another Golf.com podcast. I'm Alan Bastable, and on this show, my colleague Alan Shipnuck and I bring you interviews and insights from the wide world of golf. Joining me on today's episode is one of the game's sharpest minds and most outspoken personalities, Golf Channel analyst Brandel Chambly. After 15 years as a tour pro, Chambly joined Golf Channel in 2004. He is now an analyst for Golf Central and the network's Live From shows. He's a dogged researcher, a voracious reader, and a soon-to-be-published book author. His new instruction tome, The Anatomy of Greatness, is scheduled to be released in March. In the eyes of many golf fans, Chambly also holds one other notorious role, and that is Tiger Woods's public enemy number one a characterization that Chambly refutes in this podcast with his usual candor. Brandel, as always, has lots more in his mind, so let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Brandel Chambly. Okay, so Brandel, my sources tell me that you're, you're just back from a boondoggle at Bandon <laughs> Dunes Resort out in Oregon. Was your game as majestic as the ocean views? Was my game as majestic as the Ocean Views? No. Uh, I have not played, I think I've played one round of golf in the last nine months prior to going to Bandon. Uh, and at the end of last year, I had said to many people that I was going to play some events this year on the Champions Tour and be ready to play. Um, but I just got wrapped up writing a book and I haven't gone outside basically in nine months. I really haven't. I've just been sitting in a room reading and writing. So uh, I chipped uh, the rust away for about two or three or four days. And then by Sunday, I actually played really well. So that's one in five days. And generally, that doesn't get it done. But, uh, but I came away with bragging rights because uh, a mutual friend of ours was there with me, a, a man you might know by the name of Eamon Lynch. And, uh, well, he needed a lot of bandages and Neosporin when he left there and more shots. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear that, that you, you obviously have uh... – uh, given some thought to playing the Champions Tour, at least on a limited basis, uh, how, how far do you think your game is away from, from being competitive out there? Oh, probably pretty far. I mean, the players that have been competitive out there were, were playing the PGA Tour at 47, 48, 49 and doing well. Um, at 47, 48, 49, I was sitting in a studio talking about golf, and I've hardly played any golf. Um you know, for me to play out there, and I had intended on, you know, maybe three, four, five, six months of 
hard practice in between shows and taking care of three kids uh, to try and have some semblance of a game to go out there and play. I'd like to play just a few events a year, two or three events a year. It just hasn't worked out that way. My my youngest kids are at that age where when I'm home, you know, I, I need to be driving them to all of these, you know, various things that they're doing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to take a week off from that to go play in a Champions Tour event. So, you know, maybe next summer uh, I can take them with me to an event or two. But uh, but before I do that, I'll be practicing pretty hard um, because uh, I'm not fooling myself. Those guys are, are playing some phenomenal golf. I mean, can't just fall out of a studio and hope to compete with uh, with the best 50-year-old plus players in the world. One of the players you, you might see out there next year is a guy by the name of John Daly who turns 50, I think, in April. Uh, it, it, the prospect of Daly playing the Champions Tour, is that a, is that a, a promising one or a terrifying one? Uh, I think it's I think it's promising. You know, if you, uh, if you start to look at the last series of you know, huge stars that have turned 50, um, you know, Greg Norman being one of them, um, Davis Love, um, they're not really playing the Champions Tour. So to see John Daly, who's one of the biggest draws in the game of golf, still is uh, when he shows up, you know, uh, you know, to a far lesser extent than he used to be, but still, there's still intrigue when he shows up. So it'd be good for the Champions Tour, and it wouldn't surprise me a bit if he played very well out there he's still uh still hungry to compete and still jumps up on leaderboards here and there uh occasionally so uh, i suspect he'll do well it wouldn't surprise me if he won uh you know i think what he win three or four or five times on the pga tour i think he'll win more than that on the champions tour it seems like a perfect tour for him you know the the, the three rounds just a little looser atmosphere I, yeah absolutely I think, you know i mean daily seems to be able he can be competitive for two or three rounds it seems to be on the weekend where he he starts to suffer, so I I like his chances out there. Yeah, me too. Uh, again, I th- I think he'll 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 make a splash. He really will. I think uh, you know he's got a chance. I think at this stage to to do all the things that he left undone on the PGA Tour. Because when you start talking about players that left a lot on the table, um, his name's very near the top of the list. So I don't need to probably remind anyone of this, but we just passed the 16th anniversary of your first and only PGA Tour win. <laughs> The, the 1998 <laughs> yeah. Greater Vancouver Open. Yeah. Uh, it, it, in, in seriousness, so you shot 66 on Sunday to to beat Payne Stewart or to catch Payne Stewart. Uh, what, what, what most sticks with you from that day? Well, I think uh, Payne and I played Saturday and Sunday. Uh, I hadn't played a whole lot of golf with Payne. He ran in a different stratosphere than I did. Uh, we were friends, though. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, we shared jokes and talked to each other quite a bit and uh, um, had some nice conversations prior to those couple of days. But, uh, um, you know, I was pretty loose and, and it was kind of slow and we were on tees uh, just sort of talking. And, you know, he's got a great sense of humor. And I cracked him up, you know, several times over those two days. And at one point he looked at me and he said, you're funny. Like it was a realization to his point. Uh, I can't remember what the heck I was saying to him, but uh but anyway, we had a pretty good time. Um, but beyond that, golf-wise, um, <laughs> you know, playing the last hole, uh, I had a one-shot lead, and the last hole has an island green or a peninsula green, and really thick rough, like four or five-inch rough. And if you drove in the rough, um, you probably couldn't get it on the green. Uh, if you went 
and went at it, you'd probably find the water. So it was, you know, obviously imperative uh, to find that fairway. And I remember there was a, a pole out in the distance that I lined up, and and my ball just never left that pole. Uh, and then the pin was on the front, really close to the water, and so I played to the slope uh, some 20, 30 feet behind the pin, and it didn't come off the slope, so I was up on the tier. So I had 35, 40 feet coming down this this tier, and my ball broke maybe 20 feet. And Payne had driven it in the rough, laid up, and had like a 10-footer for par, which he'd made every single one of them. Uh, so I figured he'd make it, and you know the realization that I would three-putt was certainly there, and I needed to be careful of it because I didn't want to go into a playoff with Payne. Uh, and I just hit this gorgeous putt down the hill. Again, it broke 20 feet and fell right in the middle of the cup. And uh, from you know, 40 feet away. So I remember looking at Payne as soon as it went in and he had that look on his face, like, you know, you lucky SOB. Um, but you know, I have many fond memories of that day. Um, but, uh, but of course, you know, they say that, you know, wins are one thing, but it's, but it's who you beat that make them more memorable. So beating Payne Stewart, one of the best players of that generation. And likely if, uh, if he had lived, um, um, you know, he would have, you know, probably been one of the best players of all time. Sure, sure. And did, when you had, when you got that first win under your belt, was there uh, a feeling like this is going to be the first of many? I mean, did it did it embolden you? Uh, in, in well, you know, it wasn't like I won at twenty two or twenty three or twenty four. Yeah. I, I think about this. I, you know, I was thirty five years old when I won. Um, you know, and you know, I talk about it all the time. You know, the physiological tipping point for a an athlete is 26, 27 years of age, 28 years of age by 32, you're getting worse. Um, you know, so, you know, the game changed a lot, uh, 99, 2000. Uh, I've alluded to this in the past and, uh, you know, I'll continue to allude to it. Uh, in 2000, a solid core golf ball came out. Um, you know, um, there were other golf balls kind of like that, that had come out in 98, 97, somewhere in there. But, uh, the Pro V1 sort of took the world by storm at the end of 2000. And by 2003, every player was playing it. And it, it did marginalize, uh, you know, some of the middle length and shorter hitters who relied on uh, spinning and curving the ball a lot. You know, Corey Pavin, Mark Brooks, um, you know, David Toms. Uh, you know, there were lots of players like that. Mike Weir, um, tons of players that were relied on sort of guile um, to, uh, to uh, offset the disadvantage of their length um, that had to sort of learn how to play. I, I'm not going to put myself in the category of those players, um, but the game changed when that ball came out. It became much more of a bomber game uh, and less about artistry. So uh, if any Titleist executives are listening, we can we can blame you for the demise of Brandel Shambley's career. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not saying that. I, I, you know, the ball, uh, you know, they did what they were supposed to do. They were supposed yeah. to build a better ball, a ball that goes longer. Uh, that's what people want. That's what people buy. Um, you know, the pros uh, embrace this golf ball. And now then, you know, everybody use, uses something like it. It changed golf. It literally did change golf. Um, and look, I, I just played in Bandit. And I played with, you know, I played in pro am, um, and I played with you know four amateurs that every day different amateurs that were anyway anywhere from five to fifteen handicaps, and they smash it, they kill it. You know, they you know they've all got lighter clubs with 
more forgiving faces in these golf balls, so they they kill it. So I, I I'm not I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just stating the fact that the game changed uh, when that ball came out, and right. I was getting old, and uh, I was ready to do something else. I had done nothing but play golf my entire life, and I always wanted to go do something else. Um, I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know if I was going to go into real estate or business um, or write and you know, TV kept knocking at my door and I kept saying, no, 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 no. And I did it sparingly. And then I blinked. And next thing you know, I've been doing it now for 13 years. Does, does any part of you maybe regret not trying to do something, you know, radically different? Obviously you jumped from uh, playing straight into being an analyst. Uh, do you wish you'd maybe try something else? No, well, I didn't, I, you know, again, I didn't quit really because I was playing bad. I wasn't hurt. Um, I, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I was awful and couldn't play golf. I could still, I could still play. I just really wanted to go do something else. I wanted to be home more. Uh, I had lost a child. Um, uh, my oldest child, um, well, I picked him up from school once and, you know, I asked him if he wanted to play golf and he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't like golf. And I said, why not? And he said, because golf takes you away from me. Those things, uh, have a way of, uh, of searing you, you know, uh, you know, making you change your priorities a little bit. So I, um, you know, I just wanted to go do something else. I wanted to go home. I wanted to be home more. Um, you know, golf is a, uh, you know, we look at these professional golfers and they're making a fortune. Um, but you know, they sacrifice a lot, you know, it's, it's a all encompassing endeavor playing golf for a living. You never stop. You're on 24 seven, you're working out, you're playing, you dream about it, you wake up, you think about it, you, you know, it's very hard to be present in other areas of your life when you're trying to play a sport. Other sports, guys are washed up at 32, 33, 34. You know, golf, you know, you start playing golf when you're 13 and you don't ever quit. It's, 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 you know, it's a way of life. And I was looking for a different life. And, uh, and I have it now. When I go home, um, I don't have to spend all day long hitting golf balls. Um, <laughs> I don't spend all day long in the gym. I may go in there for a little bit, you know, just to sweat. But uh, but otherwise, I'm home, and I try to be home more. Being an NFL fan doesn't just mean rooting for your local team anymore. It means following the entire league and playing fantasy football. If you've ever been frustrated by a bad draft or injured players, FanDuel is your chance to start fresh. Now you can play with up to $200 in bonus cash when you use our code GOLFING at FanDuel.com. FanDuel is the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. They will pay out over $75 million a week this football season. FanDuel does away with the frustration of bad drafts and injured players. You can draft a team anytime and drop it in tournaments for weekly cash prizes. Entry fees start at just $1, so there's a league for everyone. Over 1 million players have won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Now it's your turn. Go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner. Use the code GOLFING and sign up now. There's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it with up to 200 bucks that gets earned as you play. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use the code GOLFING today, so don't get left out. Don't forget to use the code GOLFING. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, FanDuel.com, and use our code GOLFING.
And now back to my conversation with the always insightful Golf Channel analyst, Brandel Shambly. I think I think one person who would agree with that assessment would be Tiger Woods. Uh, you you and you and Tiger, I think if I have this right, did you play together in the 1998 International? Does that sound right? I played with him the week before I won on the PGA Tour, and then I played with him uh, a few weeks after I won at uh, at Disney. Um, played with him just a couple of times. That's right. And what what were your impressions? Uh, I mean, that was obviously Tiger was was back when he was really at his best or getting close to being his best. What was it like to play with him up close? Well, it was a highlight. Um, you know, at international, you're at altitude, so the ball goes, you know, a lot further. The first hole at the international is, a, I think it's 600 yards, maybe 600-plus yards, par 5, off an elevated tee. Uh, I remember he had a driver four-iron, pin was back right, I had smashed a three wood that hit 50 yards short of the green and rolled up on the front of the green, but I still had 70, 60 feet to the back right pin. And he had driven it down there miles past me and hit a high forearm up over these pine trees to about a foot or two feet away. If I remember correctly, and he made Eagle, um, made a few birdies in there. And then he made a hole in one playing with me on the seventh hole. Um, you know, I heard him whisper to fluff his caddy as I was teeing up, <laughs> That he, you know, he said, "God, I love this game," and I started laughing. I backed away, and I, I said, to "Tiger, uh, of course you love it. You know, <laughs> you you make every other shot you hit, you hole every putt, you make a hundred million dollars a year." I said, "You should try loving it from my perspective," um, and he just snickered. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the crowd was amazing. Watching Tiger Woods was, you know, a treat. Um, Playing with him was uh, was something I'll never forget. He did things that, you know, I could never dream of doing. Um, you know, it would be, you know, I've got friends of mine who watched Jack Nicklaus, played with Jack Nicklaus, and they talk about one irons he hit out of the rough over trees, and they just went, well, I can't do that. And that's that's what it was like to play with Tiger Woods. But it wasn't just his power. It was everything else that made him Tiger Woods. I also practiced right in front of him at the 2000 U.S. Open on Tuesday. He was hitting balls right behind me. And, you know, that was the best golf that anybody's ever played. Uh, you know, people will say, well, Bobby Jones, uh, you know, two of the events, obviously, that Bobby won were amateurs and, and, and Ben Hogan. But Ben Hogan didn't win those events by 15 and 8. Um, and he didn't win four in a row. He almost did, though. Um, and I turned around and watched Tiger, and it was, you know, it was the best the game's ever been played, the best the golf club's ever been swung, um, finishing in balance every shot was uh was otherworldly you know and uh that's a highlight for me for sure and it's been a highlight to cover him as a as a commentator to watch the golf that he played it's uh you know we'll never see it again in our lifetime we'll never see anything like tiger woods you've obviously continued to 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 watch tiger's game very closely um you know you've had you've been accused of being being hypercritical of tiger over the years whether it's you know, regarding the swing changes or uh, how his body has changed over the years. I mean, to, what do you say to the to those the, the critics who, who who say that you've been sort of unfair to Tiger? Well, I understand, you know, how people could think that. You know, it's my job, and you know, we're we're on twenty four hours a day. Every two three minutes, somebody turns to me and says, 
Randall, what do you think? You know, why did he do that? Why did he make a change? Why did he hit that shot? I, I have to have answers. I have to have some take on it. I have to give my opinion. Um, you know, it's my opinion that Tiger Woods changing the golf swing that won four major championships in a row, that made 142 cuts in a row, um, and changing that body is the most bizarre thing in the history of sports, uh, not just golf, but in sports. No athlete that had risen to that level or uh, ever dreamed of rising to that level would ever think about changing the method that, that got them there. Um, very few athletes have ever gotten there in any sport, you know, maybe Gretzky, maybe Jordan, um, you know, other sports nuts can come up with their, their analogies there. But this is, this is something that just doesn't happen to see someone come along and dominate to the extent that he was with the consistency he was and to abandon that method, um, was bizarre to me. And selfishly, um, I wanted to see him keep playing at that pace. I wanted to see him break Jack Nicholas's record. When I went into television, he was already um, with Hank Haney. And I was amazed that he was able to adopt that method uh, and take it to number one. And his his winning percentage was, was, was higher under Hank Haney. You know, that was amazing to me. Um, and I was critical of, of his work under Hank Haney as well. You know, I, I thought he was a better driver of the golf ball under Butch, but he was he, he won more often under Hank Haney. Um, so, you know, if my critics are out there, they could dig those tapes up, me being critical of him under Hank Haney, and, uh, and run them. And they could, you know, slap me in the face with that. Um, you know, Hank's a buddy of mine. I took lessons with Hank Haney in 1985 the whole summer. Uh, we continue to be friends. And, you know, Hank was sending me messages the whole time I was being critical. Uh, I would say to those critics that, you know, Tiger didn't win by 15. He didn't win by eight. He didn't win four in a row. Um, but he never lost the ability to, uh, to play golf um, in an artistic way under Hank Haney. He never did. You know, and I, I think that's Hank Haney's background as a player. Uh, he never lost the big goal, which is to play golf artistically. Hank Haney gave Tiger Woods a one-way miss, and, and, and he became a better wedge player and putter under Hank Haney than he was under Butch. Butch gave him power, and he gave him trajectory. Uh, that golf swing gave him power and trajectory under Butch Harmon. Uh, and power and trajectory um, is, well, that's what made Jack Jack. Um, Seve, Seve for a brief period, Tom Watson, Tom Watson, and great players, great players. But, you know, really it was Jack and Tiger. And so he lost some of that under Hank, but, uh, but experience and wedge game and putter and iron play made him more prolific under Hank. When he went to Sean, I had been down that rabbit hole as a player. I knew getting that technical and staying left, staying, he called it centered, but it was sort of leaning left and getting your hands that far in front of the ball at impact. I knew what it would do to his short game, his, his short wedges. Um, and I started saying that pretty much right after he started working with Sean Foley. And I could see the problems it was going to cause him. Um, you know, Tiger's a great student. He, he adopts ideas and takes them to their fullest extent. And I could see he was trying to incorporate all these ideas and take them to their nth degree. And he took that swing to number one under Sean Foley. He did. But he was nowhere near the player he was. Now, was that injuries? Was that age? Who knows? 
Um, it, it's, I mean, it seems to be that that's something that so many good players suffer from that, that you know, you get to a certain level regardless of how good, literally dominating the game, and, and yet you still a little part of you believes that you can get better still. I mean, is that, that seems to be sort of an epidem- epidemic on tour. Yeah, you know, but experience makes you better. Um, nuanced things make you better. Um, you know, little tweaks here and there make you better. Um, you know, working on a weakness here or there makes you better. And Tiger Woods was changing his strengths. Uh, his strengths were uh, high hands, quick hips, um, you know, and his belief, his artistry. You know, the more wrapped up you are or a player is in technique, the less they can take in, the less external factors that they can consider. If you are, if you are focusing on internal things, you know, controlling whatever it is, whatever your thoughts are, and it looked like Tiger had a lot of them, you, you, you miss things like the lie, um, the conditions uh, that are ever-changing, whole locations, firmness of greens. You miss all those little factors, and, uh, and those matter. You know, I mean, that's, that's a huge part of this game is being present, and it never looked to me like when Tiger adopted this more technical approach that he was present to the degree that he was under Hank Haney uh, and Butch Harmon. Um, you know, I don't, you know, if Sean Foley were sitting right here I would, you know, I'm sure I would enjoy the conversations uh, about the golf swing. I have no doubt that Sean Foley knows a lot about the golf swing. None whatsoever. Um, Justin Rose and Hunter Mahan have beautiful golf swings. And I have never not said that, you know. Um, I think both those players, though, uh, look a little bit too mechanical when they play. I, I, I see them going through uh, rehearsals before they swing. And, and personally, I... I don't think that's the highest form of the game. The highest form of the game is to um, be so committed to the shot that you're not focusing on internal cues to pull the shot off. Uh, You've long put those to bed. That's the highest form of the game. And I just never thought that Tiger Woods had put the swing changes to bed under Sean Foley. Um, You know, I, I haven't had that discussion with Sean. I hope to one day. Uh, perhaps, um, because I do have respect for his knowledge of the game. From the PGA Tour to the MLB playoffs and the NFL, nothing compares to watching your favorite sports up close and personal. SeatGeek is a fantastic service that helps you find the best deals on tickets quickly and easily. Now our listeners can get $20 back when they use the code GOLFING in the SeatGeek app. That's right, a $20 check with your name on it and there's no catch. Here's how it works. You download the SeatGeek app on your iPhone or Android. It's free and takes less than a minute to download. Then you search for your event, find the deal you want, enter our code GOLFING, and when you complete your purchase, SeatGeek will send a $20 check to your house. It's that easy. Even if you pick a seat that's less than $20, they'll still send you the full check. That means SeatGeek is paying you to use their service. Here's what makes SeatGeek so special. The app pulls in ticket options from hundreds of sellers online and shows you the best deals automatically. They also have this cool feature called Deal Score, which ranks every ticket on the market with a value score and plots the best deals on a color-coded map of the venue. Finally, the app makes the ticket buying process seamless, easy, and safe. You can store your credit card, and once you find the ticket you want to buy, you can make the purchase with two quick taps of your phone. 
So to redeem your promo code and get your $20 check, download the free SeatGeek app today. Enter promo code GOLFING. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. If you want to go see NFL, college football, MLB, PGA Tour, use the SeatGeek app and enter our code GOLFING to save $20. Speaking of playoff baseball, it's the best time of the year for Seamheads, and SI has the perfect show to keep you up to date. Every week on the Strike Zone, SI Baseball's dynamic duo, Ted Keith and Steve Canella, take you inside the numbers of America's pastime. Search for the Strike Zone podcast on iTunes or find it at si.com slash podcasts. And now back to my conversation with Golf Channel analyst, Brandel Chambly. Has, has Tiger ever taken issue uh, with something you've said? Uh, I mean, sort of one-on-one, ever confronted <laughs> you in a uh, – cornered you in a club parking lot? No, <laughs> no. You know, I, I, I don't see Tiger that much. Yeah. You know, when I'm at tour events, I'll see him sometimes in the media center in passing. You know, a couple times I think we've exchanged glances. Uh, I didn't I didn't get the sense that there was a, a lot of love there. Right. Um, from a global standpoint, I – I've said it, and I'll continue to say it. I, I'm I'm pretty sure the reason golf is in the Olympics is because the idea of Tiger competing in the Olympics was just uh, too good to be true. Um, he's a long way from making that team, but um, the impact that Tiger Woods has had on this game globally globally is undeniable. And uh, you know what what Arnold Palmer did for golf in the United States, Tiger Woods has done for golf globally. Um, so you know I I'm a fan of Tiger Woods. As a golfer, uh, I feel privileged to have watched him play. And, uh, you know, next time we watch him, he'll be 40 years old. Um, I'd love to see him get his game back, and uh, I'd love to see him go on another run. It would be great for golf. Is there, I mean, is there any way that's going to happen? And this will be the last Tiger Woods question. But, he, I mean, between the injuries, <clears throat> the, uh, the the chipping yips, which plagued him throughout much of last year. I mean, we saw, you know, I think the most telling moment was when he was in contention at you know, Greensboro there on Sunday. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, caught up to him on the 11th or 12th hole. Um, what, what, uh, well, let me let me phrase a question this way: give give us a reason to be optimistic about about Tiger in the next year or two. Okay, um, nobody in the history of golf has ever taken four different swings to number one in the world. Uh, that's that's unprecedented, and that speaks to his determination. I think more than his talents, uh, he is determined to make something work, to figure things out, to solve problems. Uh, you know, no sport will ever see that. Uh, and I think that could very well be as much Tiger's legacy as his dominance, is that he he changed his golf swing four different times as a professional, now five. But the previous four all went to number one in the world. Uh, that's an unfathomable um, accomplishment. 96 golf swing, 97 golf swing was different than 2000. 2000 was different than 2005. 2005 was different than 2013. Uh, and this golf swing is different than all of them. That's a, that's a reason to expect him to get it done. I could list many, many reasons uh, why that won't happen. Um, and it's not coming from a place of hate. <laughs> People misunderstand me it's my job to analyze these things he's a 40 year old banged up uh athlete with uh, a case of the chipping yips 
And, you know, I, I said he had the chipping yips after the waste management open. I didn't think that was any huge insight on my part. It's pretty obvious. Uh, a couple of writers, a couple of teachers wrote articles saying that I had lost my mind, saying it was chipping yips, and pointed to what he did at the Masters to prove me wrong. Um, but he does have the chipping yips. They showed up time and time again. They don't go away. Um, ever? Ever. I'm, well, okay, so, I mean, again, that's why I said Tiger Woods taking four swings to number one. Maybe he'll be the one to solve the chipping yips. But I've been playing this game since I was uh, 13 years old, so that's 40 years. I've never seen anybody who got the chipping yips get rid of the chipping yips. I've seen three or four or five professional golfers get the chipping yips. They still have them. They never got rid of them. Um, they they left the game or they've been marginalized to the extent that nobody even knows who they are anymore or talks about them in the game. You, uh, The best tour players, the very best ball strikers, are going to hit 13, you know, 13 greens, 13 and change greens a day. Uh, so they're... They're chipping four, you know, four to five times a day for par, trying to save par, and then around the par fives, which you have to beat up. Um, you know, that is a lot of chipping. You can't play the tour unless you're a very good chipper. Um, and, you know, Tiger was by miles the worst chipper on tour this year. Um, so, you know, that's, that's unfortunate uh, because it used to be one of the many things that uh, we were on the edge of our seat watching as Tiger Woods play golf. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to move off Tiger, but someday I would like you to sit down and compute how many hours of your life you have spent talking or thinking about <laughs> Tiger Woods' golf swing. It's amazing. I have done that already. Uh, what's the number? Well, I, 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 did the, I was getting ready to go do a Tiger Woods breakdown last year, and I said I've done you know, 12 years. I did the math. This many shows, this many breakdowns. It was, it was like my five thousandth Tiger Woods breakdown. Uh, five thousand and one so, now. Yeah, five thousand and one. So you know the, the the challenge is to say something that you've probably said before in a different way, um, and show the audience something they haven't seen before. Tell the audience something they don't know or didn't expect that's the challenge with tiger woods uh but the gift is that when you're talking about him you're fully engaged you're all in um because he's typically done something that's um stupefying and you know the audience is is interested as well so you know if tiger woods is watching i'd say i want to say thank you thank you for 20 years of a of amazing stories I, you know after his scandal in 2010, I was the lead analyst at his event, um, now the Hero Challenge, uh, then I believe it was Chevron. And I was sitting with Rich, and you know, Rich Lerner was the host, and he turned to me and said, you know, what do you make of this? And, and I said it then, I'll say it now. Um, you know, at that point, I said, you know, we, we take so much from Tiger. We take his quotes, and we tweet them, we tease them. We run them, we put them on our home pages, we take his video, we post it, we use it. Um, you know, we've taken a lot from Tiger. Uh, we take from him every day. Uh, it's time for us to give him something, which is his privacy. Uh, I said that then, and I believed it. I, you know, I, it's, not, it's not my place to criticize uh, what led to that scandal, and I never did, nor did I ever criticize him 
throwing clubs or cussing. People think I did when they watch Rory throw clubs. They were like, why aren't you criticizing Rory? You criticize Tiger. Like, if you can find video of me, a link to video of me criticizing Tiger Woods for throwing clubs or cussing, I'll say, okay, you got me. But I don't ever remember criticizing him for that. I I get anger in this game. I get frustration in this game. And, um, you know, I, I just can't imagine doing that. Uh, my only beef with Tiger was that uh, he changed the greatest swing in the history of golf and he changed the greatest body in the history of golf. Um, and uh, in my opinion, it didn't work out. So moving on from Tiger, there's a, there's, as you said earlier, no one's ever going to replace him. But when you look at the top of the game now uh, between Rory, Jordan, Jason Day, Maybe you could throw in Ricky Fowler of, of that group, or maybe there's somebody else, Dustin Johnson. Who, who would you be most bullish on as far as you know having the the most success, sustained uh, sustained success over the next ten to twelve years? You know, I, uh, that, that that question shouldn't give me pause, but it does because I continue to be um, amazed at Jordan Spieth. Uh, and when you see someone do the things that he's done at 22, um, you know, unless they run into injuries, which, you know, that's what happened to Jerry Pate. Um, you know, they go on to do things that are, you know, easily Hall of Fame potential. Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Seve Ballesteros, those, those are the players that, uh, that did and at, in their early 20s what Jordan Spieth is doing, although I'll say Jordan Spieth at 22 was better than any of those players that I just mentioned, um, because none of them won at 22 years of age, uh, accomplished what Jack or uh, Jordan Spieth has done. Um, but nonetheless, with Jack and Tiger and Seve, you saw it coming. Uh, you know, Jack as a, as a teenager, or I'm sorry, at 20, almost won the U S open and, um, Tiger Woods had won three U.S. juniors and three U.S. amateurs in a row, you saw it coming. You saw the power. And Seve was on the cover of Golf Digest, I think, maybe Golf Magazine. Um, we don't mention was, that magazine on this podcast. You what? I said we don't mention that magazine on this podcast. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, ki- I'm kidding. Go ahead. Um, but uh, he was on the cover of one of Golf's major periodicals um, with, the t- with the headline that said, Can This Teenager Win the Masters? Right. So we saw it coming with Jack, Tiger, and Seve. Um, it's not that we didn't see it coming with Spieth, but when you start to consider Spieth's peers, Justin Thomas, Patrick Rogers, Patrick Cantlay, Daniel Berger, Max Homa, Corey Witsit, these are players that all you could have said uh, would go on and do great things in golf, maybe at the same time or maybe ahead of Jordan Spieth. You wouldn't have picked Jordan Spieth to bust out of this pack and do things uh, to the extent that he's doing because he didn't have the advantage of great power. So, you know, there's something else there that makes Jordan speed Jordan speed. So I would be bullish on Jordan, um, even though there's, you know, plenty of people out there saying, well, he depends far too much on his putter. Um, and I would, I would argue that, you know, yeah, I mean, the putter's always going to be a big part of any young player's success, but, um, you know, there are other things that make him amazing besides that putter. Um, his savvy, he hits the ball, you know, if not long, long enough, and if not the straight is straight enough, and then he works on, and this is clever for him, really, this is a big deal for him, he works on um, trajectory, you know, he talked about it with his coach, um, that he wanted to hit the ball higher, 
that, and he realized that at a young age, that that matters. I mean, trajectory is what dominates major championships. Jack had it, Tiger had it, Seve had it, Tom Watson had it, uh, certainly Byron Nelson had it. Trajectory dominates. And and that, even though even though Jordan is not long, he understands the benefits of trajectory. And, uh, and then he has everything else. So I'm going to ask you a final question, and only because they're banging down the door here to uh, the next groups coming into our studio. <laughs> I've got about 30 questions, which I didn't ask, but... Uh, well, your, your answer, my, that's my fault. Your answers are far too uh, long and thoughtful. Uh, <laughs> you do have a book uh, in the works, which I think is coming out in March. It's called The Anatomy of Greatness. Tell us in uh, 30 seconds or less why we should pick that book up uh, in the spring. Why should someone buy my book? Um, because I wrote a book that I wanted to read, and it wasn't out there, about the commonalities of the greatest players of all time, thinking that uh, there was gold there that we could learn from the greatest players of all time. I think instruction's kind of gotten off the rails, uh, not really paying attention to what the best players did. And they did have, um, even though the golf swings look different, they did have commonalities. And if we pay attention to those, uh, I think the game will be a lot easier to play. Um, it's been it's been fun sitting down and reading about greatest players of all time and trying to uh, find those commonalities and write about it. Well, I'll be on the uh, the long list of, of customers in my <laughs> local bookstores. If, are there such things as bookstores anymore? You get one of the sure. first copies, Alan. Yeah. Uh, well, Brandon, thank you so much for your time. I hope you'll come back and uh, join us again soon. Always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you bet. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in to the Golf.com podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or at si.com slash podcasts. Tweet me at at Allen underscore Bastable, or you can get Shipnook at at Allen Shipnook to let us know what you think of the show or if you have any idea for guests. For Allen Shipnook, I'm Allen Bastable. Thanks for listening to the Golf.com podcast.